you laid it on an altar, you put it to death, you burnt it, and that was the end of that. I'm talking about sacrifices, animals that were being sacrificed to God way back in the Old Testament to atone for the sins of God's people. Living sacrifices, however, are very different. It is never over for them. They must continually and voluntarily keep putting themselves to death. They choose to lay down on God's altar and they don't crawl off it. And so giving your life to Christ is directly that, is precisely that. Has it hit you yet that that is precisely the kind of discipleship which God has called you to? And are you ready for something like that? As I mentioned earlier, today we wrap up our sermon series on stewardship, and we will do so by asking the question, so what? In other words, in light of everything that you have heard over these last four Sundays, and including this one, what does that require of you? What is the big so what about all of that? I believe that God will appeal to all of us through the mouth of the Apostle Paul to do something, and we must be willing to respond to that appeal. We must be willing to say yes. And so we are in Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read initially verses 1 and 2, but we will also consider the surrounding context as well. Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So our response to this appeal from God must be voluntary and not forced. But before we examine this appeal, what if we first took the time to understand its premise, its premise? Now the word premise means a foundation that somebody has laid for something that they will say or do later. It's like a platform, a foundation that you build, knowing that there is something coming after. God's appeal through the Apostle Paul comes from a particular premise. Now, in the chapter before this one, Paul makes the following exclamation in his letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him 
and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now Paul was attempting in the book of Romans to warn these Gentiles who had become Christians. Gentiles were considered to be the pagans, the sinners, and the outcasts in those days. So Paul was attempting them, because they had become Christians now, and they are now in the church, he was attempting to warn them against the sin of pride. He had taken the time to point out to them that it was by the mercies of God that they had been grafted into God's family. Now I'm sure that you all know that grafting is an agricultural term that describes a farmer cutting a branch from another tree and attaching it to another so that it becomes part of the new tree. So Paul is teaching these Gentile Christians that before the mercies of God had been extended to them, they were like wild olive plants. But through the mercies of God, God had graciously grafted them into his family along with those Jewish believers who had already been in it. Therefore, Paul is telling them, they had no right to boast over these other members in God's family because had it not been for the mercies of God, they would not be in God's family. Now, if it was true of the Gentile Christians back in Paul's day, it is also true of us today. Because some of us, some of us, maybe not all of us, but some of us were wild. Okay, all right, none of you were wild. (laughs) Some of us were wild. Some were drunks. Some were dishonest. Some were even immoral. Some were liars. But by the mercies of God, we were delivered from our former lifestyle and we were grafted into God's family. So let's look for a little bit at some of God's attributes. The attributes of God, they cannot be measured. Now, grace and mercy are two of the attributes of God that we hear about most in the church today. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. But Paul uses the term, the mercies of God in this text, plural, the mercies of God. And the, the word means God's concern or compassion for our misfortune. Now this is how Paul describes, or goes on to qualify and describe the mercies of God. I'm gonna paraphrase him in a verse that he uses. He says, at just the right time, in other words, in the nick of time, when we were sinners and powerless to save ourselves, God demonstrated his love for us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. That is what Paul means by the mercies of God. Now, I think that if anything should overwhelm us, it is God's mercy. If there's anything that should overwhelm us, it is God's mercy. There's a two-letter word that best captures how we feel when we are overwhelmed. It is the word, oh. Oh. That word 
expresses astonishment. It expresses amazement, joy, or pain. Have you ever been overwhelmed by the depth of God's mercy that the word oh is the only thing that can escape your lips? Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. When it hits you that there is no place in life so low that the mercy of God can't go deeper, your gut response is, oh. When you realize that there's no problem in your life so complex that the wisdom of God can't unravel, your gut response is, oh. When it strikes you that there's nothing hidden that the knowledge of God can't reveal, your gut response is, oh, because you're overwhelmed. When you discover that God's ways are incomprehensible, Paul uses the term inscrutable, higher than the human mind or artificial intelligence can comprehend. That the depth and breadth of God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge toward us are deeper and broader than anyone can ever fathom. Your gut response is, oh, because you're overwhelmed. So God's attributes cannot be measured. Secondly, the sovereignty of God is without challenge. Nobody can question God's sovereignty. Because Paul asks the question, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? These are rhetorical questions, meaning that the answer to them is very obvious. No one can ever know God's mind. You can study the human mind and you can figure out why people do the things they do, why they behave the way they do, how the mind works, but nobody can determine and know God's mind. No one can ever know God's mind. And when you realize that, when you realize that nobody can even counsel God about the complex issues of life and tell him what to do, when you realize that no one can counsel God and say, God, you should do this or that, because you can't figure it out yourself. I need to tell you what to do. When you recognize that, your gut response is, oh, because you're overwhelmed. Because God is sovereign, he doesn't need advice from anybody about anything. Because God does what he pleases, and no one can question God's sovereignty. Thirdly, you recognize that God is not dependent on anyone. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, this is how we humans behave. When somebody gives us a gift, okay, first of all, we don't like gifts, <laughs> all right? And I've, I've learned, and perhaps the American culture is very different from other cultures, that, and I've lived in other cultures. In fact, I was born in a different culture. But having lived in the American culture, I recognize this, that um, it is very hard for people to receive a gift. And if they did receive the gift, they would try to be worthy of it. They would try to um, compensate by giving something back. Am, am I right? Am, am I telling any lies about you Americans? 
Am I? <laughs> no. And I won't tell lies in church either. I learned, somebody said this week that there are two persons that I would never lie to. I would never lie to God. I would never lie to myself. And, and those are really, um, in fact, good maxims to live, to live by. But yes, I think generally it's hard for us to receive a gift. And if we did receive a gift, we would try very hard to figure out a way to give it back or to give something back. But God doesn't operate like that. Because God doesn't need anyone's gifts. God doesn't need anyone's charity in order to get by. This is what he says in Psalm 50. He says, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to me, and if I were hungry, I would not tell you. That's what God says, because guess what? I could go and kill a cow and have its meat for myself. I think that's, the, that's what God is implying here. So God is not obligated to repaying anyone for any gift because he's not dependent upon anyone. And when we realize that, our gut response is, oh, God, you're amazing. Fourthly, God is worthy of our doxology. That word means praise. This is what Paul says. It says, for from him, meaning from God, from God and through God and to God are all things. To God be glory forever. Amen. And so when it hits you that all things in life come from God, including our very breath, and that all things flow through God, including life itself, and that all things belong to God, including our every possession, and that all glory belongs to God, our gut response is, oh, because we are amazed. Now, Paul must have drawn these words from the doxology which King Solomon offered to God back when he was dedicating the temple. First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11, 11 through 13. Solomon exclaims this in his prayer to God. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. That is doxology. God is deserving of it. And so the mercies of God are the premise upon which Paul makes the appeal that he makes in this passage on behalf of God. And so let's go and look directly now at God's appeal given through the Apostle Paul. What if we responded to God's appeal? Let me remind you of that appeal. Because Paul writes this, I appeal to you therefore, in other words, since I've laid this premise and this foundation of God's mercies, let me appeal to you based on that premise. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the word therefore in this passage is a link back to the mercies of God that Paul already addressed. The mercies of God that were extended to us when God sent his son Jesus to die for us. When we were still powerless to do anything to save ourselves. Now Paul will tell us in this passage that God's mercies require two responses from us. The first of which is this. Present your bodies to God. Present your bodies to God. Now this this is language for making an offering to God. Now, we just made some offerings to God, or tithes and our offerings. So it is in the same way that we present our offerings to God that we first present ourselves to God. So in this case, we must present or represent, meaning doing it over again, or to keep on presenting ourselves to God. All three are implied in that word. You make an initial presentation of yourself to God, you represent yourself to God tomorrow, and you keep on presenting yourself to God day by day. That's the idea. How do you do that? Paul says you do that in the very same way that um, animals were presented to God, except that in this case, in this case, there's an exception now, in this case you do so as a living sacrifice. So unlike the animal that was killed, and then that was the end of that, in your case and in my case, we are living sacrifices that keep putting ourselves to death on God's altar. And guess what? We don't crawl off it when it gets difficult. Because it will get difficult. I'm not here, like some preachers, to tell you that when you serve God, everything goes well for you. You'll have the nice wife and the two or three, two and a half children. Three, they said normally two and a half children make a perfect family. Right? I'm not here to tell you that that's how it's going to be for you. I'm not here to tell you that you're going to be uh, without sickness and difficulty and challenge that everything is going to be smooth because it won't. Life gets difficult. When you're on God's altar, these things happen. And yet you don't crawl off because you are a living sacrifice and you keep presenting and representing yourself to God. Now living sacrifices very soon discover that their will, their desires and God's will, those two things clash. Over and over. They always do. And when this clash happens, it is painful. Because you see, dying to our own desires is always painful. I don't know of anybody who has to die to his own desires or what he prefers, he or she prefers in life, and they think that that's a piece of cake. It is painful. God's pruning of the bad stuff from our lives is painful. The last time I checked, Whenever you get cut with a knife, it is painful. And God has a pruning knife, not literally, of course, with which he removes things from our lives that are offensive to him. That is painful. God's discipline of us whenever we do things that are contrary to his will, that is painful as well. 
But I've always discovered that all of that yields something very beautiful, very good. Now here's the second response that God's mercies require of us. The first response is that we present and represent and keep on presenting ourselves to God. The second response is this, and it's in the form of a negative command. Do not be conformed, God says, to this world. In other words, do not allow the world to pressure you or to squeeze you into its mold. For those of you who are familiar with what a mold is, you create something and then you pour something in that, and then it takes on the very shape of the mold in which it was. And that is exactly what the world is trying to do to all of us as Christians. The world is trying to squeeze us and to pressure us into its mold so that we become more like the world rather than distinct from the world. God says don't allow that to happen. He gives us an alternative. He says instead, be transformed. And this is not a one-time thing. In other words, if you look at the actual grammar here, it means be transformed being transformed. In other words, go through that process where you are continually being transformed. You do have a slide on there, under there, on there, I think, that captures that. Is it there, by the way? Yes, that butterfly is morphing. The idea is metamorphosis. It is undergoing change. What we need to do is to allow God to morph us or to change us, or to transform us, so that we become holy. All that that word means, because some people get kind of fearful of that word holy, all that word means is different. Allow God to make you different, so that you are pleasing to him. And so holiness, we find, is God's territory. That's the territory in which God moves. Now, we, as human beings, we move in a certain territory unless we are transformed. God, work, God moves in the territory of the holy. Only God can make a person holy. There's no amount of action that I can do, no amount of ceremony that I can go through, no amount of tradition that I can um, experience that allows me to be holy. Only God can make a person holy. Only God can make you and I acceptable to him. That is why we must present ourselves to him. That is our responsibility. We present ourselves to God, and then God's responsibility is to transform us and to make us holy. The idea here is, how many of you are familiar with incense and how it smells? You know the fragrance of it? It's very pleasing, right? When our lives are holy, it's almost like we are giving off an aroma and a, an, or a fragrance to God, an incense to God, which is pleasing to his nostrils. And then when we go through that, Paul says, we are able to mature, and from a, stat, from a standpoint of maturity, we are able to discern what God's will is for our lives. Now here's what Paul calls all of this. He comes up with a word for all of it. He calls it spiritual worship. Spiritual worship. So in other words, when you present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice, and your mind is renewed and God is transforming your, has transformed your life, that is spiritual worship. So the only worship that pleases God is spiritual worship. 
And spiritual worship begins with us presenting our bodies to God. Even before we offer him our music, our songs, our prayers, and our offerings, the first thing that we do is that we offer ourselves to God. That is spiritual worship. There are other ways in which you might um, describe the term spiritual. Other translations use logical, reasonable, rational, proper. But one of the words that I think we can actually use for it is the word intentional. Intentional. Meaning that the worship that we offer God must be intentional. We must intentionally present our hearts, our minds, our wills, our entire beings to him so that he, in fact, refines us and purifies us as we just sang. Let me close with this story, which I think really makes the point of what it means to offer ourselves to God. I'm told that a chicken left the barn, approached a pig, and had a conversation with the pig about what she thought they might do to honor their farmer, Farmer Jack. And so the chicken says, I think we should make him breakfast. And the pig said, I'd be, I'd be happy to help. I'd be glad to help. Um, I think some of you know the story already, because I'm hearing a little chuckle over here. So the pig says, but what, what should we make? And the chicken says, well, I'd be happy to give some eggs. I think Farmer Jack would love uh, bacon and eggs. And the chicken looked, I'm sorry, the pig looked around and started to scratch his head and then determined to himself, well, it seems to me that what you're saying is that you want to only make a contribution but you expect me to make the ultimate sacrifice. Because obviously, to provide bacon, the pig would have to give his life up so that the farmer might make bacon from the meat. I want to close by saying to us this morning, respectfully and yet firmly and directly, that God deserves not just our contribution, but our whole self not just our contribution. Our contribution is fine. God will not um, reject it, but God deserves more. He deserves our whole selves. Here's how we're going to apply this message this morning. We are going to apply it by, first of all, challenging you to present yourselves to God as you partake of communion. I think that communion is the perfect way to end this message, because as we enter into this most sacred time, we remind ourselves of God's mercies toward us. We remind ourselves that at just the right time, when we were powerless to do anything to save ourselves, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life, who paid the ultimate sacrifice to bring us from our sins and to bring us into the family of God. I want us then to hear this gracious invitation to partake of God's, I'm sorry, to partake of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood and to do so to our comfort and to our healing. 
Let me first mention that it is our practice here at Brown's Chapel to serve communion to anybody who testifies of having a relationship with Christ or who desires to have a relationship with Christ. We don't exclude anyone, whether you're from a different denomination or, or, or other. We give it freely. We ask only that you examine yourselves before God to ensure that you are indeed walking with him and living the way he expects. So please receive this invitation. You who are walking in fellowship with God and are in love and harmony with your neighbors, and you who do truly and earnestly repent of your sin and intend to lead a new life, following the commandments of God and walking from this time in his holy ways, draw near with faith and take this holy sacrament to your comfort and meekly make your humble confession to Almighty God. Let us pray together. God, our Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by the mercies of God toward us. Like the Apostle Paul, we say, oh, the depths of the riches and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your ways. They are past finding out. God, we're thankful for your immeasurable love for us. And God, as we remember your sacrifice, as we remember how you bled and died and suffered on the cross in our place, we meekly and humbly confess our sins to you. We confess our brokenness. We ask for your forgiveness. We pray that you would make us worthy so that we might enter into this most sacred time with you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.